we continue our sermon series in the book of Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. Um, also, you can find in the app a sermon listening guide that will have the scripture printed so you can follow along there as well. Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 to 2, and then verses 11 to 16. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you, sh- or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller shares the story of a young woman. Her name was Mary. She was an accomplished musician, and she struggled deeply with mental illness. And she had checked herself in and out of psychiatric institutions. And it was during this time that she gave Tim, who was her pastor, permission to speak to her therapist. And this is what her therapist said. Mary virtually worships her parents' approval of her. And they always wanted her to be a world-class artist. She is quite good, but she's never reached the top of her profession, and she cannot live with the idea that she has disappointed her parents. She was on medications that helped manage her depression, but it never got to the root of the problem. Keller goes on to say that the the root of her problem was in her functional belief, which he would have described this way or she would have even described this way. If I cannot be a well-known violinist, I have let down my parents and my life is a failure and I have very little worth as a human being. How would you fill in the following statement? If I cannot achieve blank, then I feel like a failure and have little to no self-worth. Or, if I cannot be blank, then I I feel like a failure and I have little to no self-worth. The question is, where does your worth come from? The short answer is God's redemption. But the question is how? How does redemption establish 
your worth as a human being? Now, to answer this, we're going to answer three questions. Who establishes your worth? What establishes your worth? And then how do you remember your worth? So let's start with who establishes your worth. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And then he says to his people, when you get to the promised land, the land of Canaan, verse 12, you shall set apart or consecrate to the Lord all that first opens the womb, all the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. God established his rights over the firstborn. He says, all the firstborn belong to me. And this isn't the first time or the last time that we read of the firstborn in the book of Exodus, right? Exodus 4.22, the Lord says, Israel, meaning the whole community of God's people, is my firstborn. And then Exodus 22.29, you must give me the firstborn of your sons. And it wasn't just the firstborn of Israel that belonged to the Lord. It was the firstborn of Egypt as well. That's why he says in verse 15, for when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Now, why the firstborn? What's the significance of the firstborn? Well, in ancient cultures, and even to some degree today in cultures around the world, the firstborn signified the center and the future of the family. The firstborn had special privileges. The firstborn received the inheritance. So you say, well, that sounds like God's playing favoritism there. No, because the firstborn was to represent all of the offspring that followed. In the same way that a, a captain would represent a football team at the beginning of a game or an executive would represent a corporation at the bargaining table. Right? The firstborn represented all of the offspring that would come. Right? The, the same principle applied to the Israelites uh, with first fruits. When God told the Israelites, give me your first fruits, what he meant was when you plant your seed and the harvest comes and you see the first piece of fruit and a pop, then, then you take that and you give it to me. Because that shows that the rest of the harvest belongs to me as well. So God asked for the first fruits. Same principle operating here with firstborn. Right? The firstborn showed that the entire family to come belonged to the Lord. Right? To, to consecrate the firstborn was to consecrate everyone else that came out of the mother's womb. In other words, it was the whole family. When God established his rights over the firstborn, he was establishing his rights over every person, over every human being. And this explains why God got so angry with Pharaoh in the Exodus story. We read in Exodus 1, right? In Exodus 1, that Pharaoh tried to kill the Israelite babies by drowning them in the Nile. And then Exodus 5, he makes them make the same number of bricks with less straw. He abused them. He controlled them. God's people didn't belong to Pharaoh. God's people didn't belong to Pharaoh. So when we read in Exodus 4.23, 
God says, if you refuse to let my firstborn go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God wasn't throwing a temper tantrum. God was rightly and justly defending his right as father to his children. And so he was fighting for his children, for his firstborn, Israel. Your worth as a human being is determined by who you belong to, not what or who controls you. You're born into this world, controlled by sin, but belonging to God. And God as heavenly father goes to fight for his children who belong to him, though controlled by sin, ruined by sin, you know, wrecked by sin. You belong to God. You don't belong to your overbearing and uncaring boss. You don't belong to your company that treats you as a commodity. You don't belong to the bully at school who strikes fear in you. You don't belong to your trafficker who uses you to make money. You don't belong to your abuser who ruins you for selfish gain. You belong to God. Any of those examples and belonging to anyone other than God ultimately will land you as a commodity, which means that as long as you're useful, you're loved. But as soon as you are no longer useful as a commodity, you are discarded. God doesn't treat you like a commodity. He doesn't love you because you're useful. He doesn't love you because you're productive. He loves you because you're his child. So you belong to God. He alone establishes your worth. The question is, how does he do it? And that brings us to the second question. What establishes your worth? What establishes your worth? Look at the end of verse 12. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Verse 13, every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Because the firstborn belonged to God, God commanded that Israel give him their firstborn. It belonged to him, and so he says, now give me your firstborn. How did that happen? Well, if it was an animal, it would take the form of a sacrifice. We read this in Numbers 18, verse 17. But the firstborn of a cow, or the firstborn of a sheep, or the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem, they are holy. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar and shall burn their fat as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So an animal would be sacrificed. The firstborn of an animal would be sacrificed to be given over to God. But then we see this one exception, or at least one of the exceptions, with a donkey. The Israelites were allowed to use donkeys as pack animals, but they weren't allowed to eat them. And they weren't allowed to sacrifice them because a donkey was unclean. But because even the unclean donkey belonged to the Lord, how was Israel to give over the firstborn of a donkey? There were two options. Break its neck or redeem it by offering up a sacrificial lamb in its place. In other words, death or redemption, a lamb in its place. You say, well, what about firstborn sons? 
So I see animals, we see a donkey. What about firstborn sons? Well, what's interesting is after God gives the instructions for the donkey, the next statement he makes at the end of verse 13 is, every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Just as donkeys were unclean, God's people were unclean. And the firstborn son was unclean. So how was Israel to give over their firstborn son to God, to whom they belong? Well, not by child sacrifice. So the donkey, it was either death or redemption. With God's firstborn sons, it was not child sacrifice. That's forbidden in the scriptures. God forbids his people to offer up children in sacrifice. No, it was redemption. It was redeem your firstborn son by offering up a lamb in his place by offering up a lamb in his place. This concept of firstborn unpacks one of the more difficult stories in the Old Testament. And that is the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. God says to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your firstborn son Isaac to the top of the mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. Now, the the common interpretation of this passage, because at the beginning it says that God was testing Abraham. The common interpretation is God was seeing if Abraham really loved him. And to prove his love for God, he had to kill his son. Now that's troubling. That's troubling. And if you're a skeptic, if maybe you're investigating Christianity, this may be one of the stories you go, yeah, there it is. Really hard for me to jump on board with a God who would be on child sacrifice. No, well, there's another detail in the Abraham and Isaac story that speaks volumes. And that is when God told Abraham to take his firstborn son on top of the mountain and sacrifice him, Abraham didn't push back. He didn't say, whoa, God, what are you doing? No, I'm not gonna kill my son. He he didn't push back. He silently said, Isaac, let's go. Why didn't he push back? because he understood that God was calling for the firstborn. He was establishing his rights over the firstborn. But Abraham also knew, says in that that passage in Genesis 22, he told his servants, my son and I are going to the top of the mountain to worship God and we will be back. Abraham knew, Abraham knew that God would provide, that he would redeem the firstborn of his son. And certainly enough, they get to the top of the mountain and God provides a ram in the thicket. He provides the ransom and Abraham's firstborn son is redeemed. This is the beginning of God redeeming firstborn sons throughout the Bible by offering up a lamb. And remember the firstborn sons represented all of God's people. This was the beginning of God redeeming his people by repeatedly offering up a lamb. And those lambs all pointed to ultimately Christ, who is the lamb. And the New Testament says this about Christ. In in Colossians 1.15, Jesus Christ is called the firstborn over all creation. In Revelation 1.5, Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. God redeemed you by offering up his firstborn son. And 1 Peter 1.18 says it this way, you were ransomed 
you were redeemed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You have been redeemed at the greatest price. At the greatest cost, you've been redeemed. God didn't spare his son. He offered him up as a ransom payment. In his book, Written in Blood, Robert Coleman tells the story of a a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. He says that that, uh, the doctor told the little boy, told the family that his sister had this disease and that the only way that she was going to be healed or cured was to receive a blood transfusion from someone who had conquered the disease. And it's the same disease that the the brother had had several years earlier. And on top of that, the brother and sister both had the same rare blood type, so it was a perfect match. And so the doctor goes to the little boy, says says to Johnny, would you give your blood to marry your sister? And this little boy, he hesitated, and his lower lip started to tremble. And then he finally said, sure, I'll do it for my sister. So they get wheeled into the hospital, and, and, and Mary is pale and thin, and Johnny is robust and healthy, and he smiles as they meet, and then they're taken back, and the, the needle's put in him, and the blood starts to flow, and it gets to the end of the procedure, and, and, and Johnny, the smile starts to fade, and the concern gets on his face, and his lip starts to tremble again, and he looks at the doctor, and he says, Doctor, when do I die? And it was that moment the doctor realized why Johnny had hesitated in the first place, because he realized, or he thought, that by giving his blood, he would have to give his life. Now, I share that For you and I to realize with Christ, he poured out his blood and he did give his life. Sometimes we forget the cost. We forget the price that God paid, that Christ paid to redeem us. We can read about salvation in the book of Exodus and it's beautiful, but redemption is, is unbelievable because it points out the cost and the price that it took for God to redeem you, to redeem us. Jesus shed his blood as a ransom payment so that he could become the firstborn of many brothers and sisters, as Romans 8 says. Your worth, your value as a human being is fixed by the expensive, precious blood of Jesus Christ. Your worth is not determined by your salary. Your worth is not determined by your success. Your worth is not determined by your popularity or by your grades. Your worth is not determined by your body image. It's not determined by how good of a mother you are or how good of a father you are. Your worth 
is not determined by the number of titles at the end of your name. It's not determined by how much you know. It's not determined by the number of degrees you own. Your worth, your value is fixed by the precious blood of Christ. Worth is always built and established through death. It's always built and established through death. If you seek to establish your worth by any of those things that I mentioned or anything or anyone in this world, someone else is going to pay the price. Someone else is going to functionally die. If you establish your worth through success, then it might be your family that pays the price. Or it might be your coworker who you slander to get ahead of that pays the price. Or if you establish or you attempt to establish your worth through wealth and through stuff, then someone who needs your help, someone who needs your generosity is going to pay, is going to functionally experience a death. Or if you attempt to establish your worth through what you know, then the person that you condescend to or the person that you belittle to establish your worth by what you know is going to pay the price, right? If you try to establish your worth by anything in this world other than Christ, then someone else is going to functionally die a death. They're going to pay the price. But if you establish your worth by the blood of Jesus Christ, then instead of being a life stealer, you become a life giver. Christ pays the price. Christ is the one who dies so that you then with your worth established through his death and his blood and his ransom payment, you become a life giver to those around you. What's the primary implication of redemption? What's the primary takeaway of this beautiful doctrine of redemption? of Christ pouring his blood out, paying the ransom for you. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20. You are not your own, which means you don't belong to yourself. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. That's the so that. You were bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. Now, therefore, glorify God. You say, how do you do that? How do you glorify God with your money? How do you glorify God with your time? How do you glorify God with your talents, the gifts that God has given you? We'll start with money. Let me speak in the negative here. Again, we're talking about firstborn here, first fruits. If you are in Christ and, and a member of Christ's body, which is the local church, so whether it's this one or maybe it's another one if you're visiting, if you're not tithing to the body of Christ, which is the local church, then you are functionally confessing that your money doesn't belong to God. Because God asks for your first fruits. He doesn't ask for all of your money. 
But he does say, I want your first fruits. I want your tithe, which is not what's left at the end of the month after you've spent everything to see if there's something left over. He says, I want your first. I want your best. I want your tithe. Because the tithe confesses and shows that the rest of your money belongs to God in the same way that he asked for Israel's first fruits of their crops. Give me your first fruits, and that shows that the rest of your crops belong to me as well. Think about your time. How do you glorify God with your time? God asks for your first with time, which means that if the only time that you engage with God is at the Sunday morning worship service, corporate worship, and you're not engaging with him throughout the week in what we would call personal worship, where you're in his word and praying, then you're functionally confessing that your time does not belong to God. You say, I'm just too busy. I can't get around to it. And that would be the point. God doesn't ask for all your time. He asks for some of your time in personal worship. And that's the, that's the, the show or the confession that the rest of your time that you give to your company, to your family, to your sports team, to your hobbies, whatever it may be, belongs to him as well. He wants first fruits. Or take your gifts, your talents. How do you glorify God with your gifts and talents? If all of your talents go to your company or go to some uh, civic organization you're involved in, kind of outside of your company, if all of your talents go there and there's nothing left for the body of Christ, there's nothing left for the church, then that's a functional confession that your talents don't belong to God, but they belong to you. God says, give me the first fruits of your talents which means I, I want your spiritual gifts and I want your talents to be used in the local body of Christ in the church as first fruits. And then your talents beyond that, they belong to God used in the marketplace and at work and on teams and in social circles, whatever it may be. So we've answered the two important questions. Who establishes your worth? God. What establishes your worth? The precious blood of Christ. Finally, third question. How do you remember your worth? Look at verse 14. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Verse 16, it shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. How do you remember your worth? It's community. The nearest form of community being the family. When verse 14 says, when the sons ask, what does this mean? That this is referring to Passover. Right before this description of the firstborn, God gives the institution of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And as we looked at, Passover through the work of Jesus Christ has been transformed into the Lord's Supper. How do you remember your worth? The Lord's Supper, where you're reminded of the ransom payment, the blood of Christ. And when your children... When your children say to you, hey, mommy, daddy, 
Why are you drinking that juice? Why are you eating that little cracker? What does that mean? You tell them that by a strong hand, the Lord has redeemed our family through the blood of Jesus Christ. You tell them the story of redemption and you tell each other the story of redemption. That's how you remember your work. And that's why we're so big on community groups here. Because a community group is where you show up and you look at each other and you recognize we've been establishing our worth and everything else in this world and you remind each other our worth is established in Christ and by his blood and by his ransom payment. Antoine Fisher is a film, but it's based on a true story of a young man who was abandoned at birth by his incarcerated mother. So he grew up in abusive orphanages and he grew up in foster homes and reform schools. And after his 18th birthday, he joins the Navy and in the Navy, he's just fighting all the time, getting in fights because of the anger that was inside of him for being abandoned for all of his life. And so they order him to go to counseling and he goes to a psychologist whose name is Jerome Davenport, who's played by Denzel Washington. And Denzel Washington tells him that if you're gonna find healing, you gotta go to your roots. So he makes some phone calls and he finally finds an aunt and an uncle in Cleveland. And they take him to this dilapidated old apartment complex. And he knocks on the door, the door opens, and this woman answers, broken, hurting. And he realizes this is his mother who abandoned him at birth. And she realizes, wow, this is my son. And when she realizes that, she retreats to the back of the apartment. She sits down and silently cries. And he comes up to her and he says, why didn't you fight for me? Why didn't you come find me? She won't look at him. She stares ahead silently, just utterly broken and devastated and cries. And so he kisses her on the cheek and he walks out and he's discouraged and he's despairing. He gets in the car with his aunt and uncle. They drive back to the house. He gets out of the car and he's just slumbering up to the door as a man who's lonely, as a man who has no meaningful connections in life, as a man who has very little self-worth at this point. And then he opens the door and 50 relatives start cheering and clapping and roaring because they're meeting him for the first time. And he walks in and they're hugging him and slapping him on the back and little cousins had made signs for him and they take him into this other room and there's this spread on the table of food, this feast. And then there's this little elderly woman sitting in the room and she gets his attention and she motions him over. And when he gets close, she grabs his hands. She caresses his face. She has a tear streaming down her cheek and she kind of musters up all her strength with her raspy voice and she looks him in the eye and she says, welcome. That's what your heavenly father says to you. Welcome. I sent my firstborn son to pour out his blood as a ransom payment. And because of that, 
you are welcome in this family. You are welcome in this community. What a picture of what the church is to be. We all have brokenness in our past of varying degrees, but we all come limping in because of sin and brokenness. God, our heavenly father, as we limp in, having found our worth in all kinds of things in this world, and we limp in, he looks at us and says, welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. Your worth is fixed by the precious blood of Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess the so many ways that we attempt to establish our worth in so many things in this world and so many people, and we are let down over and over. Father, would you remind us by your Holy Spirit that our worth is fixed by the precious blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And that finding our worth in Christ, the firstborn, that we would be life givers, not life stealers. Father, I pray for those maybe gathered, maybe live streaming that have never understood this and have been on a search to find worth and have been just disappointed and devastated over and over that they would put their faith in you, Jesus, the one who poured out your blood as a ransom. That they would find themselves a church and a community and a welcoming family. Father, you are so good to us. Thank you for not sparing your son, but giving him up for us all. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.